of our guest speaker, Seth. So, hi, everybody. Hi. hi. <laughs> uh, my name is Seth. I used to go to this school, too, so I'm as thrilled to be here as you are today. Um, which means I'm really not happy to be back in person. Um, so, yeah, it's actually nice for me to be back here. It's cool to talk to you guys. Um, this is a global religions class, I guess. Yes. So I'm here to talk a little bit about Buddhism, and I wanted to know, yeah, what you guys know about it, or what you want to hear from me, and then maybe I can find out what I'm going to talk about. Um, so maybe if you could just like shout out things that you know, you can forego the whole hand-raising thing. And if you know absolutely nothing, you could shout out what you think you know. And you won't be stupid or laughed at if you're wrong. Yoga. Yoga. Four noble truths. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these are like buzzwords. Do you guys know what those things are or also? Or? Yeah. Yeah? So what is uh, Four Noble Truths? Um, life is suffering. Suffering is caused by Tana. The only way to release from Tana is the Eightfold Path. Life is suffering, huh? Always? No. Sounds like Buddhism sounds like a downer, right? <laughs> so what's the Four Noble Truths? You said that? Oh, no, you said Eightfold Path. Yeah. Yeah, what's Eightfold Path? Uh, right views, right concentration, uh, right... You guys can help them out, too. Right, right, right effort. <laughs> yeah, right speech. Right mindfulness. Have you ever tried to name, like, the seven dwarfs, and you get to six, and you're like, which one did Happy, don't be sad. can't remember which one. It's kind of like that. <laughs> okay, yeah, good enough. Yeah, so what else? Anything else you guys know? Story of the Buddha. You want to give me, like, some bullet points? Basically, when he was born, he was a prince, so he had a like, very good childhood. He was sheltered. Then he went on, like, four trips, and he saw things that changed his worldview, like, saw himself. So then he decided to go on a sort of a spiritual journey for like many years, and he finally gained enlightenment after trying to touch the methods. Okay. I'll take it. The scentism. <laughs> okay. Um, there's three different branches. What are the three different branches? Uh, yeah, it's okay. So, and also, is there anything that you guys want to know about? Is there anything that you say, like, what is this? What is, is there anything that you don't really understand fully or that you read about that you're like, the book that we have kind of sucks and it doesn't really do justice and I want to know more about this? Is there anything specifically that's interesting? Or that you're curious? The three branches are. Three branches are? <laughs> Anything else? So you feel like pretty good with Buddhism? Like, okay, I know enough to satisfy my own curiosity. Is this like too much pressure to put you under at this time of the morning? Yeah? Like, what is like the right mindfulness sort of idea? Because it sounds like the book had trouble explaining that itself and it admitted that. Sure. The book admitted that it didn't know what it was saying. Well, it said that it's hard for, it said that it's hard to describe to like Westerners what that sort of means. What? Okay. So that means that the author doesn't know what it means. <laughs> okay. So I'll just talk a little bit. Okay. So I'm gonna talk a little bit, and as I talk, if there's anything that I say, and you're like, "Ooh, that's an interesting thing." You can just raise your hand and ask me questions about things. Okay, so we'll kind of work together as we go. All right? Um, so my name is Seth. Again, it's nice to meet you guys. Originally, I'm from Andover, so I went to um, Bancroft and Doherty and High School, so you know, Bancroft represents that. Uh, we had the Dragon's Lair playground when I was there, which has gone down in legend. It's 
coolest playground ever. Um, so yeah, so I'm from Andover, and when I left Andover, I went to college. I didn't really know why, it's just what everyone else did. My mom wanted me to go, so I said, okay, I'll go to college. Um, and I went to school for physics, because I thought it was cool to see how the world works, but I hated math. So when I got to college, I actually switched to fine arts, because I wanted to play with clay and stuff instead of sitting in math class. Um, and while I was in college, I actually ended up meeting a Buddhist monk. And suddenly, my life just made sense. Because I said, oh, I'm actually not interested in physics, but I'm actually not interested in art. I'm interested in finding about myself and about the universe. I realized that I'm interested in discovering life and reality. And, and what is this, right? We're in this thing called life together. But what is this? You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, what is this body that I'm in? What is this place? Like, what is this? And I realized that the thing that I was actually looking for could be called spirituality. And spirituality for me has nothing to do with religion. So for me, Buddhism is not a religion either. Yeah, so I know it's world religions class, right? But actually, Buddhism is not a religion. Yeah, so when I talked to this monk, it really touched me because he was saying things that were, yeah, like really similar to what I was saying to myself. He was really um, answering questions that I'd been asking. He was really giving me a, a system of understanding that I found super helpful. He was speaking more to the human condition. So by the human condition, I felt like he was speaking more to me as a, as a person, as my actual experience of the world, than you know, if I ever went to a, a church or a temple and they're talking about you know, God or Jesus or be good or this talking a lot of kind of uplifted ideals and things that sounded like stories. And I felt a little bit disconnected from all of that. Um, but when he was talking, he was talking to me as a person, to my experience. I was like, that's what I want. I want to learn about myself. So when I graduated college, he actually invited me to come to the monastery. Um, and, you know, at first I said, no, I just got out of school. I want to be free. And he's like, okay. So I got in my car and I drove from Boston to San Francisco and just kind of hung out on the beach and tried to live life. But I realized pretty quickly that I felt actually pretty empty and I wasn't as happy as I thought I would be. So I drove back from San Francisco to Boston. And then I contacted the monk and I was like, you know, is the, is the offer still on the table? So I flew to Germany. Um, so his monastery was in Germany and so I became a monk in this monastery. And I ended up staying there for eight years. So pretty much from, I graduated college in like, I don't know, May or something. I forget what month you graduate college. Maybe like May or June. And then I was in the monastery by October of that same year. So pretty much where a normal person would maybe get a job, I did this. Right? And then I was there for eight years. So I was in the monastery until I was 30. Right? So it was like a big chunk of my life. Right? Um, I can maybe talk more about the monastery itself at some point. A lot of people often have questions about what that's like. Um, but just right now to give kind of the overview. In uh, 2014, I left the monastery and then I spent the next two years traveling through India and Australia. So I went to kind of all the holy Buddhist places in India that I could find and I talked to a lot of teachers, um, met a lot of masters, did um, some personal retreats. So I ended up at one point like really high up in the Himalayas in Sikkim, which is kind of in between Nepal and Bhutan. So it's a part of India. So like the Himalayan mountain range kind of goes across the top of India. And um, I ended up going to this really sacred kind of mountain and found a cave and did like a retreat by myself in this cave for a while. And really kind of like tried to live out the monk life. And then I went to Australia and to a monastery there and I did a three month retreat where my meditation really took off. And yeah, then I, I came back here for I think two or three months and I moved back in with my parents, still as a monk and I started going down to MIT and they asked me if I could teach down there a little bit. Uh, and I did that and I just realized that I wasn't really happy yet, something didn't feel right. So I then ended up going back to India. And when I went back to India, then I disrobed, so I took off my robe, so I'm not a monk anymore. So I disrobed, and then I took another eight months traveling up through India, um, kind of rediscovering who I am or what is my relationship to the world as not a monk. 
So as you can imagine, it's like a pretty big identity crisis when you're a monk and not a monk. Right? Um, and then I went back to Australia again, just on the way around. And then I've been back here for about two years. And so right now, so I have like a girlfriend, you know, we live together. I um, teach at schools. Um, I do things like this, but I also, right now I'm working with Wood Hill. And I did a, a meditation retreat for their teachers. And I'm also doing one um, next weekend, actually, for the principal of Doherty and some of the teachers of Doherty and some of the teachers from West and some of the teachers from Wood Hill. So really trying to integrate kind of all these things that I've learned um, into the school system because it seems like, you know, we need it, right? We need it in our society, and this is just a good place to start bringing it in. And, um, and I started teaching in classes like this. I started teaching meditation mindfulness to students. But then I felt like we talked to a group of students, they'd be really engaged and interested, and like, wow, that was cool. And then they'd leave the class and maybe remember a couple things that I said, but actually just forget the rest. And it felt like it wasn't really sustainable, so that's why I'm thinking more to start talking to teachers. Because if teachers can hold down that energy in the school, then naturally you guys will all be a part of it. Maybe it'll help relieve some of the stress and kind of bring some more clarity. Um, yes, that brings me more or less to the present moment. Um, so there's a couple things that I can talk about, and I guess we have time. I'm going to eventually lead you guys in a meditation today, just so you experience what this is, if that's cool. Um, we were thinking to do that in the last like 20 minutes of class, so about what, uh, when the big hands on the what, should I start? The uh, eight. Okay. So there's a couple directions that I can take this in. Um, I can talk more about my personal journey. I can talk more about monastery life. I can talk more about Buddhism and the ideas and understandings of Buddhism and the structure of it. And I can also talk about the mind and kind of things that are maybe more pertinent to our direct experience. So if there's anybody here that really would like to hear more about any of those things, just let me know and I can begin in there. Uh, both uh, monastery life and what your everyday looks like, like what you practice. Now. Um, okay, so I have a bit of a slideshow here for monastery life stuff. Um, yeah, so this was me last year of college, my 22nd birthday. I'm the one on the left. Yeah. Um, and then this is when I went to the monastery, so there was a group of Westerners there. Um, this is actually, so this is me here. This is my friend, Bill. We actually went to college together. So we, we then went to Germany together to the monastery, which is pretty cool. Um, and then German, German, French, German, Italian, German. And this is actually a nun. She's just wanted to be in the picture with us. So there was monks and nuns living together, so men and women. Um, this is a picture from my ordination, so that's me taking refuge in the Sangha. So in Buddhism, we say there's the three jewels. There's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so we say that because there's the Buddha. So he was, as you learned, an actual man, right? He lived in India. And he reached enlightenment. And I can talk more about what even enlightenment means, right? Because that's a very vague term, I think. Um, and then he, so he realized this, this state, um, and he began teaching it to people. And the teaching is called the Dharma. So just the teachings of the Buddha is called the Dharma. And then the Sangha, it's the monks and nuns and the people that practice those teachings. So they say that all of those things are equally important because if the Buddha realized this, but he never taught, then it wouldn't help anybody. If he realized it and taught, but there's nobody to practice it, then it would just stop with the Buddha. So the fact that people are still practicing it, it's like the Buddha is still living on through our practice, right? So the energy of enlightenment is still living every time we practice Buddhism. Um, so this is me interviewing a monk, Achan Brahm, that came. So I actually ended up going to his monastery in Australia. Super funny guy. He has a lot of talks on YouTube, you can see. This is us freshly, uh, freshly shorn, so right, so right after the ordination. So these are actually two nuns. And then these are, this is myself, this is another monk. Um, so this is right after the ordination. 
we kind of said, you know, okay, no more killing, no more stealing, no more lying, no more sex, no more drugs, no more doing things that harm ourselves and others as much as possible. And we put on the robes, right, shaved the head, and became part of the community of monks and nuns. Yeah, so this was kind of the, the introduction to that community, so to say. Um, this is the first step where you really take it seriously, and you say, I'm going to take this on and embody it. This is me um, doing an alms round one day. So we walked around and we collected, I'm wearing like a blue ceremony robe, and we walked around collecting um, like food and things like this from the community that wanted to make offerings. So traditionally in Buddhism, the Buddha and the monks, they were like beggars, right? So they had the monk bowl, and they just wandered freely through the countryside of India. Uh, they would go to a place, they would stop and wait at a door, and if the people would give them food, they would receive it. Um, and then they would move on to the next door. If they got no food, they'd, you know. So they just kept going door to door, just standing there waiting. And eventually, when enough people had given them food that their bowl was full, they would then just silently kind of walk back into the forests or into the park, wherever they were practicing. And then they would eat that meal, and then that was it. So they had like one meal a day. Um, and whatever they took, they would eat. So it was really just beggars. They didn't say like, oh, could I have like the nice, you know. They would really just receive whatever people gave them and be very thankful because that's what they were surviving on. Um, so I don't know if anyone here ever goes camping or anything like that, if anyone likes to go hiking. Have you ever been hiking and you have maybe like a granola bar or something and you're starving and you take out this granola bar and you're like, oh my God, this is like the coolest granola bar ever because you're so excited to have something to eat, right? So this feeling of, um, you know, you have nothing, you just have this bowl and you're just walking. And to really be given food, you really... It's, you feel super grateful and thankful and you really treasure whatever's in there, even if it's something that you don't even like. Um, so it really also made sure that the monks kept in contact with the population, right? That the monks didn't just go off and never contact people, so they kept in touch with each other through this process of, of making food offerings. Um, and it also really gave the monks the feeling that you're not just practicing for yourself, you're also connected to everybody else, right? So life at the monastery, in a large part, was very much like a normal office life, so to say. So we had like website work. Um, we had an acupuncture and massage and Chinese medicine clinic. A lot of the monks that came from Vietnam were acupuncture and Chinese medicine masters. So we had a lot of patients. A lot of the German people would come in. A lot of people that Western medicine said were hopeless and there's nothing you can do. They came to us and we were able to help them with Eastern medicine. So we had a lot of patients coming through, so we really also practically through our livelihood, right, right livelihood, so through our livelihood also supported people, tried to help people and heal people. This is a really old Vietnamese nun. She tried to stab me once. That's a long story. <laughs> so she, um, somebody gave her as a present a, um, she's, by the way, super sweet. She's amazing. She's 70-something in this picture. Um, or 70, Maybe she's like 79. Every morning when I came down for meditation, we had meditation every morning from like 5, 5.30 to 6, or 5 to 6.30, depending on the time of year. I'd come down at 5 or 5.30. She was always the first one there. And she'd be doing like kung fu, like warming, like... <laughs> Like trying to like strengthen her body and like one, it's like little. She's this. She's small, really small woman. Like, like really bringing up her energy and like getting ready for the day, you know. Um, and so somebody from the community gifted her a pair of headphones and like an iPad or, so, or an iPod, and she put it in, and uh, she was like listening to it. She sat down at the eating table with it, and all the monks kind of like look at her, and and the abbot of the monastery looks at her and he's like, and he's Vietnamese too, and he's like, you know, what is she doing? And he starts yelling at her, like, you're not wearing, like, we're a monastery, you're not wearing your iPad to, to the meal. And she was being, like, really stubborn and, like, like, wouldn't, like, listen to him. So I just, like, got up and I picked up a pair of scissors and then I just walked up behind her and I just cut the cord on her headphones. And then she stood up and started yelling at me in Vietnamese and she just reached out and picked up, and luckily it was just a chopstick. She just picked up the closest thing to her hand and was like, like this and tried to get me with it, you know. I was like, ah, oh, it's okay, it's okay. So it's this big kind of thing. So yeah, so within the monastery, there's a lot of like interpersonal, it, it was like a reality TV show in a way, right? So as much as we're all kind of practicing to uh, 
you know, to fulfill certain ideals and to be good people, sometimes just the human comes out of us as well. Yeah. Do you like speak English there? Um, I did speak English. I learned German while I was there just by speaking with people. So I'm fluent in German now as well, and I, I got a couple words of Vietnamese. But yeah, luckily, so all the Vietnamese, they only spoke Vietnamese. My teacher spoke, I think, five or six languages. Um, and most of the monks and nuns, the Germans, they all spoke English. So they learn English in school fluently, which is interesting, because when I went to Germany, anytime I would find a student, I could talk to them in English, and they could speak English. And I thought about that, because I know if someone from France or Spain came here, or Germany, and they tried to talk to you guys, people would be like, uh, un poquito, you know, like we learn a little bit, but all of them speak English fluently by the time they graduate high school, which is interesting. So yeah, we also baked, so we made the food, so we took turn cooking, folding flyers and things that went out. Um, we'd have events, right, New Year's and retreats and different things like this. And then we also took some personal retreats, so um, the monks and nuns, we went up to Switzerland. This is a picture from Switzerland up in the Alps. And we did a two-week meditation retreat up in the mountains where it's like nice and quiet. So yeah, so it was a combination of really working and serving the community, and we had communal meals, we had silence when we ate. So we had communal meals, and then we had these ceremonies where we got like our ordinations and all of this. Um, you know, it's interesting because like I was saying, Buddhism's not a religion, but then you see a room that looks like this with these big golden Buddha statues, right? And you're like, well, so what's that about? And I would say that it's originally people started making Buddha statues um, on the Silk Road, a lot of, when the Silk, do you guys know the Silk Road a little bit? So yes, there was like this, this path that kind of went from, where did the Silk Road even go from? China to the Middle East. Yeah, so it, and even so it was like even Greece and it went over the Himalayas and stuff like this. So it was this path, so you had just tons of different people, lots of traders, lots of merchants, lots of artisans walking through Asia together. And a lot of statues of the Greek gods were actually coming out of Greece at the time. So the Buddhists were like, well, they have statues of their people. We want statues of our person, too. Kind of. um, but what the statue of the Buddha really represents is it's just saying, like, this is your potential. So the Buddha himself, he said, you know, don't... He really said, you know, it's like, don't worship me. Uh, I'm not a god. Don't worship, you know, what I say. Um, he said, if, if somebody's pointing for you to look at something... Don't look at their finger. Look at the thing they're pointing at. Do you guys know what I mean when I say that? Don't look at the finger? So it's like if you go to the church, right, and they give you the Bible, there's a lot of people that they, they take the words of this book or they take this book as this holy thing. But actually that book is trying to tell you something. It's trying to show you something to embody. Right, so Buddha, he's saying that he's like the finger that's pointing. He's like, I'm just trying to show you something to create happiness and peace in yourself. It's like, I'm trying to show you a way to practice. It's not about me. Don't come and look at me. Look at the thing that I'm trying to show you. Okay? So yeah, this is the acupuncture clinic uh, workers, some of us. And this is a picture of myself in Tibet. So we also took a trip to Tibet. Um, Really crazy trip when you land in Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. It's really high up, so you, you get out of the plane and everyone kind of just collapses from altitude sickness. So you know when you get off a plane, there's like that tunnel that comes out of the airport and connects to the plane? You know, so you walk out of the plane and you kind of walk down that tunnel. So when I got off the plane and I just stepped onto that tunnel, there was just people just sitting down on either side of the tunnel all the way down. Because they literally just took a step off the plane and it hit them and they just had to like sit down and catch their breath. So it took a while to acclimatize and also the longer we were there, the higher up we went. So again and again and again, you'd be hit by altitude sickness, feelings of dizziness, shortness of breath. I saw people like just fall over and pass out. So it was really crazy. Um, it's also really difficult in Tibet because you see what the Chinese have been doing there. Um, right? So it's... There's been like change of, of land um, multiple times in history, right? So the world, it's been a lot of populations of people moving up and then down and around. So there's been a lot of migration. But, um, but yeah, so the Chinese, there's a lot of really good resources and minerals. 
in the mountains, and it's also strategically a good place to plant missiles um, for India and different places. So it's like a nice defensive place. So they wanted it for a lot of geopolitical reasons and also financial reasons. So they made up kind of the story that said, well, Tibet is actually ours, so we're going to go and take it. And um, so, yeah, so the Chinese army kind of just marched in. And the Tibetans, you know, it's a bunch of farmers, a bunch of monks, they didn't really have much. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were just killed by the Chinese and thrown in jail. And when you go there, you see, um, you know, as you're driving through Tibet, you just see all the ruins of the monasteries, right? So it's in rubble. So imagine, you know, if you guys were driving through you know, Andover, and you see all the churches are just in ruins on the ground. Yeah, everything was just destroyed and burnt to the ground. It'd be crazy, right? So it's the whole country that just destroyed. And when I was in Lhasa, the capital, you'd see all of the older people. They would be praying. They'd be walking through the streets. They had little prayer wheels. They'd spin the prayer wheels and do mantras, like, Om Mani Padme Hum, so they'd be walking, right, saying these mantras. Um, but there wasn't really any young people. A lot of the young people were killed. Yeah. So you really saw like a big generation gap. And I also really saw that once these old people were dead, there wouldn't really be any more of the, the actual, the culture, the tradition of Tibet left in Tibet. So it was really sad. Um, and also a lot of the Buddhist statues we went to, the heads were chopped off. Um, in Lhasa, the Dalai Lama had his temple there, the Potala Palace. It's a really big, beautiful I mean, it's like a palace, but it's huge. It's up, it's kind of, has anyone ever seen a picture of this, the Potala Palace? It's like built into a mountainside. So it's like the mountain comes up and then becomes the actual structure. It's incredible. Yeah, check it out when you go. Google Potala Palace. So it's, there's hundreds of rooms, huge place. Um, and the Chinese, they just leveled everything around it and they built like a shopping plaza and fake plastic palm trees outside of it. So really, yeah, are just doing their best to just kind of kill the culture there. So it was really sad to go there and just witness that directly, to really directly see that, that this, these whole peoples were just, yeah, their culture was being destroyed. Right? Um, but on the other side, we saw some really amazing places, some holy sites. We went to a cave that was inhabited by Padmasambhava, who was the one that brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. And he was known for having like magic powers, so really powerful dude. They would sometimes see him like flying through the sky. And we actually went to a, a temple, and in the back they took us to like the secret cave. And they showed us that in the back of the cave there was a footprint in the stone. And Padmasambhava was known for this, that he would actually be able to leave his handprint in rock, or his footprint in rock, which to us is like, that's crazy. But, um, but he understood you know, his mind was just so powerful that he really understood the nature of material reality. So he could really do what he wanted with material. So he could do things like levitate. And he could also, yeah, stick his hand through a rock or put his foot through a rock. And I've seen a couple examples of this where I've seen like handprints and footprints in solid stone. It's like, yeah, just you know, pretty nuts. So we also had a really young monk there, so we had a bunch of younger monks. In Asian cultures, it's very normal to send children into the monastery. Um, in Tibet, in uh, Thailand, in Burma, and Laos, they, Vietnam, um, they really see that it's kind of good fortune for the family to have a member of their family in the monastery, but also a lot of times, like it's the best education the kids are gonna get. You know, if the kids don't go into the monastery, they'll be like working on the farms with the parents. So if they go into the monastery, they get a good education, they get taken care of, they get fed. Yeah, there's me meditating. Um, so is there anything that I've talked about so far that you guys want to know more about? I can't tell if anybody's bored or just a ramble. Is that the Dalai Lama? That is the Dalai Lama and me. We invited the Dalai Lama to come to Germany to give a talk. And um, for the advertisement of it, he was asked to have an interview with a European business magazine. And they needed a, um, my sweater's in my mouth. They needed a cameraman for it. And it's really interesting because in college, I did uh, 
art, right? I ended up doing art, and I graduated with media arts. I graduated with video. So they're like, yeah, we need a cameraman to film this interview with the Dalai Lama. And I was like, I did that in college. And they're like, okay, you come with us. So yeah, I ended up being part of this group that went, there was a group of like seven of us. Um, and we went in, and you know, I have the camera, so I have it on the tripod, and we go, and this is in Paris. We go to Paris, and we go to this really like, luxurious hotel, and he's in like the presidential suite, right? So we kind of go up, and there's like security and stuff. And then the door opens, and I'm in the front, because I have the camera, right, on my tripod, so I'm holding the tripod. And I step in, and then it's just the Dalai Lama standing in front of me. And I was like, oh, and I wanted to bow to him, but I was holding the camera, you know, so I was just like, I had to kind of, just like this awkward moment. And he just took my arm, and he was like, oh, like, so, like, where do you want to do this? Should we sit by the window? And I was like, oh, no, we should sit over here. And so we sat down, and then we did the interview, and it was interesting, because it was called um, Buddhism and Business, because it was the business magazine. So they were saying, like, how can we use the Buddhist principles to help the business world? And he was saying, well, if you look around, a lot of the problems you see in the world and in business are morality problems. People that are not being honest, not being genuine, they're cheating people, they're trying to get power. Um, they don't really care about the good of everybody. They're really just trying to serve themselves. So he really said that, you know, what we need is just simply more morality. And then afterwards, he just said, okay, photos. And then everyone took their photos with him. So yeah, it's this really sweet moment. And then after everybody left the room, I was the last one. And I was walking out of the room, and all the security like, was like pushing everyone out. So I was like walking out, and then I kind of realized that all the security guards were in front of me. And the Dalai Lama was behind me in this empty room. So I was like, uh, so I just put down the camera and I just turned around. And then I just like walked back across the room and just like held his hands. And I was just like, thank you, thank you. And I was just like alone in this room with the Dalai Lama. It was just this amazing moment. Because nobody is alone in a room with the Dalai Lama. Because he always has security guards and translators. And it was just this weird, like, yeah, like glitch in the matrix where everyone just happened to go out at once, and I was alone there, so I just had this like really intense moment with me and him. Like, yeah, it's really cool, very special. Um, so, this is a picture from, uh, oh, actually, interestingly enough, as long as we're saying this, I was recently in India, and I went to one of the Dalai Lama's monasteries, and they gave me a bag of blessing pills. And what these are is that when the Dalai Lama goes on retreat, they have some like incense and some different substances that he practices around. They're like under his bed or something, or they're like near him during this like retreat process. And at the end of the retreat, he blesses all of these objects. And then they mix them all together, and then they roll them up into these pills. And then, so they're like infused with the energy of the Dalai Lama's retreat. And then you take them and then you eat them. And you can eat them for like illness or for you know, spiritual awakening and things like this. So I actually had a big bag, so I thought I'd bring them today. So if anybody wants to eat a Dalai Lama blessing pill, you can, you can do that at some point. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's super special. So I just saw a group of Tibetan monks making a salmon dollar. And I was like, you guys want some blessing pills? They're like, how do you have those? Those are so, I was like, yeah, I know. Yeah, because they're, like, they're really rare, so it's not. It's not every day, so maybe like we'll find a time to do that at the end. So anyway, I I personally would like to talk. Well, okay, maybe I'll stop. Is there anything you guys want to know about? Yeah. Sure. No, so because we had a, um, like a Chinese medicine clinic and we had a big community, that would kind of pay for the monastery and then the money that we made extra, then we also used that to go on the trips. So yeah, for eight years, I really didn't have to have any money, which is a pretty cool feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I still teach meditation. I'm actually leading a meditation through DCS um, at the, you guys know the yoga room? It's like across the bridge. So starting, I don't know, next week maybe? Um, so if anybody actually wants to, either next week or the week after. Yeah, so in, on the 16th. 
So if anybody's interested, I'm actually leading a meditation class, a six-week meditation class here at the high school. It's like 7 to 8, 7 to 8 o'clock Monday nights, um, starting on the 16th. So yeah, so I teach. Um, I don't practice as much as I practiced at the monastery. That was like every day at 5, you meditate, you know. I hate waking up early. This is like the earliest I've been up in a while, you know. So I try not to wake up early anymore. Um, so I'm giving myself a break, yeah. But I think that, so right now I'm reading a book and it's called Altered Traits. Yeah, it's called Altered Traits. And it was these two Harvard um, professors, or they were both students at Harvard. Now one is running like the brain imaging lab in, in Wisconsin and one is, you know. Um, working with you know how to use mindfulness for emotional benefits so to say and they just came out with a book called altered traits and it's finally like scientific documented evidence of how meditation affects your brain and what it does for you and they said there's like a couple levels of meditation like you know there's some apps out there like headspace and calm and these different apps where you can practice like a couple minutes a day and it gives you a little bit more peace and they're saying that, yeah, there's like this kind of watered-down mindfulness thing that's in our culture that people use just to get into it a little bit. But the more you practice, the more it does. And they measured the brains of Buddhist monks, of Tibetan monks that were on retreat for like 10 years, you know, that have, they said, like 30,000 hours of meditation or something ridiculous. Um, so they measured the brains of these like Olympiad meditators to see like what is the difference in their brains. And they saw that their brains function completely different. And they now have like the actual scientific backup for this. And they said like for one thing, so the brain, there's different brave brain waves. I don't know if anyone knows about brain waves at all. But there's like, so there's delta when you're in like deep sleep. There's theta when you're kind of like sleepy or sleep, like starting to fall asleep. There's alpha when you're starting to get more relaxed. There's beta, which is like what we're in right now. And then there's gamma and gamma is like really high functioning. like when you're learning something new or like when you're in the zone in sports or something, you're in this thing called gamma. And they found that Tibetan monks, their resting state is in gamma. And even they found that when they sleep, their brains go to gamma. So it's as if their minds are, their minds just turned on. Something's just, the switch is flipped, right? So what I can also say from my own experience is that through the practice of meditation for so many years in the monastery, it's completely changed my reality. It's really changed my way of reacting with other people. It's changed the way of kind of reacting with what's happening inside of me, with my own thoughts, with my own feelings. Um, so it really turned everything on its head. So meditation, it does more than just relaxing you for the moment that you're meditating. It actually starts to really change you on like super deep levels. So it actually now, it literally changes your brain. Um, and it also really changes your experience of reality, which is pretty cool. Um, so when I was in the monastery, I had a lot of really cool things happen. I did actually a three-month silent retreat while I was in the monastery. So I was alone um, for three months in my room. And I'd come down to eat a meal, but I had to be silent, and then I'd come back up. And during this time, you know, I had a lot of time to myself. It was really quiet. And I started practicing more, and meditations would get deeper. But my perception started getting more and more subtle. So I started having lots of different kinds of experiences. Like for instance, I would be able to feel beings, like other kinds of beings, like walking into the room. And I could interact with them. I could almost have like conversation with them and feel them and feel what they're doing. Whether these would be called like ghosts or whether these would be called just beings in other dimensions, like not exactly sure. But it started to become really apparent that there's other beings around. I don't know, has anyone ever had like a ghost experience or know someone that did or something? So in our culture, we don't talk about it that much. In other cultures, it's like a very normal thing. You go to Asia, everyone's like, yeah, ghosts. Yeah. So it goes to my mom, whatever. It's, it's normal. So I started being able to like interact with these kinds of beings, different things. I had a time where I was walking, doing walking meditation in the hallway outside of my bedroom um, at night. It was like this long hallway, so I'd just be walking back and forth. And it was, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, so I'd just be walking. And then at one point, I started getting kind of tired, but in like a trance, and I closed my eyes. And with my eyes closed, I realized that I could still feel this hallway. And so I just walked for a good 10 minutes with my eyes closed, just down this whole hallway. I felt when I approached the wall, 
And just to make sure I opened my eyes and the wall was like there, I was like, okay, it's really happening. So I closed my eyes and I could just feel everything around me with my eyes closed and I could just navigate space with my eyes closed. And so I had all these different really weird experiences starting to happen that it's like almost once the mind gets relaxed and open enough, you start to be able to access other kinds of perceptions that otherwise you're not aware of. So this is like a really cool, so again, that whole like it opens up reality. Because suddenly there's these new things in reality that you never knew about that are starting to be experienced, right? So it really opens up also kind of like a mystical, even paranormal, but yeah, deeply spiritual world that before, because you were just operating on one level, you weren't really able to access. Um, so I'm only going to talk for 10 more minutes and then we're going to do the meditation so again if there's anything specifically you guys want to hear from me I can address it yeah okay right the three schools question um, so there's Theravada, Mahayana and Vajrayana so Theravada, it's the original, wow. there was the Buddha, yeah, and then the Buddha taught a lot of people in a lot of different places, the Buddha passed away, and then they had a big conference of monks to say like, the Buddha's gone, so we need to figure out what Buddhism is, so they had like a big Buddhist meeting and figured out here's what Buddhism looks like, but over time that developed into like 16 different schools. And then at some point in history, early on, um, there was, I think it was like Muslim invaders that came down and they just killed like all the Buddhists and just kind of like wiped out a lot. So all of the, there was I think 16 or 18 schools of Buddhism and they all got destroyed. But one um, monk happened to go down to Sri Lanka and they went down to Sri Lanka and they wrote, they wrote down, um, they chiseled it into like stone tablets, kind of the teachings of the Buddha. So once everything was destroyed, they're like, well, actually, Sri Lanka, which is an island south of India, which your teacher has been to a few times, um, they went down there and they found, oh, there's still one set of these teachings that are preserved. So they brought those set of teachings back up into India. So what we know is Theravada, which we often call like the original Buddhism or old Buddhism, was actually one of like a bunch of schools of early Buddhist sects that had developed and it's the only one we have left in its entirety yeah but that's called so that's called Theravada and Thera means old and Vada is way so it's called way of the elders right so this is the way of the ancient ones right um, then there's Mahayana Maha in Sanskrit it means big or great yeah and Yana it's a vehicle so it's like a great vehicle and in Mahayana one of the key differences for them is they say that you're not just practicing for yourself, you're practicing for everybody. So in Mahayana, so it's a big vehicle, right? So, so everybody can go. So it's like, I'm not just practicing for me, I'm practicing for all of us together. So it's kind of that mindset, like how can I, through my practice, really save everybody? It's that kind of mentality. And then when that went up into, um, into Tibet, um, it was, then became Vajrayana. Vajra means diamond. And Yana way, so it's, it was the diamond way. So it's, and they said that these are now, they really kind of refined the teachings and really got down to like the nitty gritty. And they also started combining different um, like tantric approaches and different, so they started also then in Vajrayana combining different like, what they would say would be like methods to accelerate the process of practice. Yeah? So those are the three schools. When you hear about three schools, that's what they do. And I, I was ordained as Mahayana, so Zen Buddhism was Mahayana. But I practiced with all of the schools. So I lived in Tibetan monasteries. I lived in Theravada monasteries. So I kind of became familiar with all the schools. And ultimately, they're all kind of trying to get you to the same place. Should we just do the meditation now? Is that cool? Or does anybody have any like last thing they were like really interested? In?
So we're going to do a meditation. <clears throat> if you are not interested to meditate, you can just put your head down on your desk and take a nap. No problem. For the meditation, I would say just clear off your desk so you just have like a clean space in front of you. And you can either sit cross-legged or you sit with your feet flat on the floor and kind of sit up, sit upright, right? So make yourself kind of stable but feel, yeah, feel grounded in the center. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to ask you guys to kind of come into your personal space. So come back to yourself. So kind of just forget that you're in a classroom with other people. Forget about your friends for a moment. Really just come back to yourself sitting here. And really just very basically, just feel how you're doing. Okay, so this is a question we don't ask ourselves that often, right? So how, how am I? How am I doing? Do I have tension in my body? Or is it relaxed? Is it hot or cold? Am I nervous, excited? And now close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, notice that you can feel the entire shape of your body. So with your eyes closed, feel the entire shape of your body sitting here. Notice you can feel the shape of your head, you can feel your arms and hands without even moving anything. Notice you can feel the shape of your torso and your legs and your feet. And you notice you can actually even feel all ten of your toes at once. So now getting even more interesting, notice that you can feel the ground beneath you. You feel the ground under your feet, but notice you almost can sense the ground around your feet, even the place that you're not physically touching. As if the mind is greater than the body. And the next step is you can expand that and feel the space of the room around you. Same kind of thing. You feel that the mind is not trapped within this physical form. You can actually feel the space around you. You can get a sense of the space around you. So while you're sitting in that feeling of space, I'm going to ask you to take three deep breaths. Breathing in through your nose, feel your body expand, and out through your mouth. Okay, everybody do that. And as you're relaxing and breathing, I have with me a small singing bowl. So I'm going to ring this three times. And I want you to listen to the sounds, notice how the sound vibrates, and also how the sound passes away. So you're just going to relax and breathe with your eyes closed. And just listen to the sound come into your awareness, and then also slowly fade out.
Breathing deeply. So you've closed your eyes and you'll <clears throat> relax your eyes. Relax the muscles in your face and your forehead and your jaw. We relax our shoulders and our arms. We relax our chest and our stomach. You take a few deep breaths to help relax your belly, any tension you might feel. Softening the muscles of your back, but still staying upright. Relaxing down your hips and legs. Relaxing your ankles down to your feet. your toes, see if you can feel the tips of your toes, again feeling the ground beneath you. Feeling the space of the room again. Feel the space around us. back to the feeling of your body sitting here, noticing that your body is breathing. How your body expands with the in-breath. How your body relaxes with the exhalation. Just relax, allowing whatever you feel just to be there. Just be aware, be an observer. Any feelings or sensations, any thoughts. present. Allow your mind to rest.
Feel the entire breath flowing in and the entire breath flowing out. Just relax and anchor your mind on your breathing just for a few moments. Breathing in and relaxing, breathing out, feeling at peace. Feeling the space around you together with the breath. Feeling the space of the room around you simultaneously while feeling your breath flowing in and out. Relaxing, breathing. Listening again to a few sounds of the bell, allowing the vibrations to come in to your awareness and also to leave your awareness. Taking three last deep breaths in through the nose, filling the body out through the mouth. Deep in breath, filling the body. Full exhalation through the mouth. Last deep breath, breathe in as deep as you can and then hold your breath for one second, two seconds, and out through the mouth. rub your hands together until they become warm. You can put your hands in your eyes. And you can rub your eyes, rub your face. You can rub your ears and the back of your neck. You can stretch out. You can slowly open your eyes. Come back to the room. It's always dangerous doing this first period because people just want to go to bed afterwards. It's just 
How are you feeling? 